Let's imagine that we are making one of the greatest American stories not previously told. We have $6.8 million. We're going to head to the most logical place possible to tell this story. Where do you think that is, Mary? Colonial Williamsburg? Absolutely not. We are headed straight up to the Black Creek Pioneer Village in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Sure, that tracks. A wise woman once told me that it's never a good thing to run towards something if you're running away from something else. I I don't know what those words mean. I guess what I'm asking is what was Shailene running from? everyone um we made it here we are we're in a cinematic wonderland we're taking a hard look at felicity's film adaptation starring none other than shailene woody woodley 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 sorry about that my name is mary and i'm allison and this is the show where we're reliving american girl book by book and we're also doing some other side hustle episodes like this one on a film adaptation. Now, Allison, before we get into the film, and I will just say this is all new terrain for me because I sort of abandoned ship on American Girl before they made a foray into movies. Same. So we were finishing high school when this film came out. It came out in 2005. Right. So when I saw this kind of dance across my screen, and and we're not even going to get into the film yet because we have some other stuff to discuss first. It was kind of like what I imagined, like an Amish person encountering buttons for the first time where I was like, why are the pictures moving? Like, why is Felicity moving? I'm, I need her static on the page. That's what I know. That's what feels safe. So, I mean, I've really gone through it this past week, dealing with this film, the fallout, really everything along with it. We've both spent many an hour going through the film, going through the film again. Mm -hmm. You had some extras on your DVD. I watched mine on Prime, so we had different experiences, which was interesting. It's really been wild. And before we move on to another thing, I just want to say I was not making fun of Amish people because as you, you and I both share a dream of going undercover in Amish country and have for quite some time. I I think the best they'd really let us have is Rumspringa. Okay, but that's not okay. So in my ideal situation, I know we've talked about this privately many times, but just to kind of bring people up to speed on this. I would like to go to Amish country. I would like to live with a family. I would like to have a job that is not too physically intensive. And I would like to have um, a secret barn electrical hookup so that I could watch Grey's Anatomy once a week. That is really the sticking point for me. Because as you know, when when I went there as a child, I did go to Denny's and I dined alongside many Amish people. So I know that the other thing, breakfast food, which is very important to me, I can still have. So I think that's not being Amish. What? what? Described. Yes, it is. I think those were probably Mennonites. I don't I don't know. I don't know what I was looking at, Allison, but, you know, so I was some, nine. Some Amish people have cars. They have telephone access that they use selectively. Okay, but here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm remembering. I'm at Denny's. 
which like a dollar store is one of my safe spaces. And shout out to the person who messaged me on Twitter and said that she felt seen when I said that dollar stores are a safe space of mine. I was not kidding. That's real. Anyway, I'm at Denny's. We're leaving. There's a bunch of Amish people waiting outside for their ride. They all get into a 15 person van. I notice as they're getting into the van that their clothes are being held together by safety pins and kind of like bobby pins because they don't do buttons. Correct. But they're at Denny's and they're taking a van to and from and that's okay because they're not driving the car. And I mean, they're enjoying the electrical light of a Denny's. They're enjoying the fruits of Denny's beautiful griddle. But you know, it's not for me to unpack. (laughs) Do not make a face about Denny's. I'm not dealing with that this week. What? You're going to you're going to bring it to me about Denny's. So we won't go too far down this, but your actual, I think, true genesis of the love of Denny's is one of our favorite shared scenes on the small screen was the scene in Sister Wives where they have a wife summit at a Denny's. And it's there's actually really nothing funny about it. But I think the contrivance the contrivance of it was okay here's let me just let me just give people a really quick summary so on sister wives christine who is my second favorite sister wife <laughs> janelle's number one because she's not there for him at all and you can tell that she's basically like that. i want free daycare thanks anyway christine is like actually in love with this dumb dumb i don't remember his name but and it doesn't matter but he brings on wife four right whose name i also i've also Robin. out Robin. And so Christine basically is like, look, I'm sitting with the fact that I'm actually feeling some jealousy about Robin's relationship with my husband. So then there's like this weird testimonial, I think, where she's kind of like, when I need to sit someone down and have a serious conversation with them, I take them to Denny's. And yeah. I sit someone down and I was like, you know what? That wouldn't be my first pick, but I respect this move 110%. As part of my checkered employment history, I was once employed at a Denny's. For how long again? So I worked at t- Denny's for a two-week trial period. And what a trial it was. <laughs> so I was busing, cleaning, taking orders, doing food prep, doing cleanup, all of those things. But I had been categorized as not a waitress. So I earned like three fifty an hour and didn't get tips. I quickly realized this was not going to work well for me. So I returned to my very lucrative other fast food job that was paying me, I think, six seventy five at the time. Much respect. Thank you. Much respect. We had to bring up these important, I would say, cultural texts because there's this other very relevant show that's re-entered our lives as of this week. It's a Monday night staple. It's very important. The Bachelorette is back. You know, some of the most dramatic scenes on television. One, Chris Harrison, and I'm not even going to give you space to talk about how much of a crush you have on him because it's just rough. Like, I might have to invite you and sit you down at a Denny's and just tell you that it's inappropriate. But I haven't gotten to that space yet because I think it's okay for now. And I don't want to take all your joy. But we were introduced to a real cast of characters this week. And look, I will be the first to admit I'm not excited about this season or I wasn't initially because I literally do not remember a single defining characteristic about the woman who is the bachelorette. She's the beast, Hannah B. I don't remember a single thing about her. I think that's why it's so interesting. 
Yeah, because it's like, I want to know what direction she gave the producers about what her ideal man is. First of all, very interestingly, you can't, for those who are unacquainted, you're not allowed to speak about politics or religion on camera. So you can have those convos off camera, but it's never making it on the show and it's discouraged. We are introduced, they depict like three guys before you meet all of them at the cocktail party to do a little like background, like extra tape on one of these guys i don't remember his do you remember that guy's name allison i can truly say i do not remember a single name i refuse to commit any of their names to memory until we get to like the final three or four weeks because it's just not worth it but they show him in the shower of course and that you hear this voiceover where he's basically like i know i'm really hot like i know that about me and i've been with a lot of women and then one day i was in the shower and jesus spoke to me So I think that that scene was derived from sort of Colton mythology. Mm -hmm. Like they were taking two random parts of his personality, like one being vaguely Christian and two showering all the time. And it made me worried because there's something we've noticed, like the less interesting the people, the more shower scenes there are and the more helicopter and hot tub scenes there are. Yeah. Sometimes it's a chopper to a hot tub to a shower. And then they take a plane back. Indeed. Indeed. Where it's like, oh, I can't possibly talk to you right now. Like we are in a we are in a two person plane. I have goggles on. Like or Windy Cliff, a Windy Cliff oh my God, a- achieves Win- the same. And thing. we saw the preview that there is going to be a Windy Cliff date later on. And there's really? a man like weeping. They love to have a man weeping on a cliff. If this interests you at all, we have to recommend a favorite book of ours, which is yes. Amy Kaufman's Bachelor Nation, which is a fantastic book that she almost got sued and got many desist orders over really getting into how this show is actually made. They never pay for a single experience for these people. It has to be comped or they won't film there. The revelations Amy was able to track down for this book are simply stunning. I mean, she she takes you on the path from how these people get selected, what's in it for them, like what's their experience like getting vetted to be on the show, what's it like to live in the mansion. She finds out, among many other details, but this is one that has stayed with me, that they keep the roses in a trash can on ice. And that feels like a metaphor for the whole franchise. Is it not a metaphor for the actual nation we live in? Yeah. I mean, oh my God. Yes. It's times like these where I feel like we seek comfort on a different channel. Sometimes you have to go higher order, higher power, higher number. There's something happening on HBO that people cannot stop talking about. By people, I mean us. By people, I mean you and I. It's a Sunday night show sometimes, or I guess Monday night. I think it's Sundays. I am watching this show on, I don't want to say stolen, I want to say liberated HBO Go password. Thank you to the person who liberated it for me. It's taken over our lives. Like, honestly, you sent me a text or I'm not even sure how we got into it, but you have like the perfect description for this show. So I'll just, it's three words. It's Gay Downton Abbey and it's Gentleman Jack and it is absolutely fantastic. (sighs) This show is so good. Oh my God. I feel myself organizing my whole life around on this show where I'm like, when is it on? I threw such a tantrum last night because just to like date it when we're recording this last night was the Game of Thrones finale, which I could not care less about. Never seen it. Do not care. Not interested in people's hot takes. I mean, you basically like you had a really bad internship one year where you were living in the hallway of a house. I'm not going to say where it was. I'm not going to say who you were with. And basically, I came to visit you one day and I was like, you are not well. Like I took you around. I was like, I don't like I don't like where you're at. I don't like what's happening here. But something you did in by way of self-care was that you read all of the Game of Thrones books that summer. 
I did. And you told me the plot. And I feel like that's as close as I ever need to come to this. Sometimes we read things for each other. So I was like, this is a 5,000 page commitment I'm making. You don't have to. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think it's a show that has a lot of cultural importance. I'm not even talking about the ending because we're not dealing with it. By contrast, I know exactly what's going to happen in the life of Ann Lister, who's the real person that inspired Gentleman Jack. I think part of why we both love history is we're not really big spoiler people. Like Mm -hmm. We literally always know the ending and it doesn't change anything for us. I think what's great about Gentleman Jack specifically is if you've been keeping up with scholarship about how to really do, I think, the stories of people who we might think of as queer in today's language, but who lived lives that are sometimes hard to decode when we look back to 300 years. Anne Lister, compared to other people of her generation, was like very clear about her relationships with women, what her boundaries were, what her parameters were. And she's sort of this very rare example of spelling out all these things that historians are often looking for as a coded thing. She's just very clear because her class privilege allows her to live in a way that, I mean, honestly, there's only a handful of other examples of women mm-hmm. actually doing this. Like, for all intents and purposes, marrying another woman and living together as a couple. Right. And we're talking like 1830s England. Yeah. And we would not even know about her experience except that, so because she kept a, a very detailed diary, which I now am like obsessed with reading. Well, and she has an American corollary in, if you've read Charity and Sylvia by Rachel Hope Cleaves. I've not, but it's on my list because you recommended it to me. Yeah. I think what's really fascinating is there's a real parallel between one of the women in that book and Anne Lister. And part of why Rachel Hope Cleaves is able to write this story in such rich detail, she also has a really great paper trail. And I think what's fascinating about both is there's so many instances where people destroyed papers of people that we would think of as queer living in the past. These papers survived partially because of their privilege and their class, but also people who lived with them kind of just understanding it as part of their life. Like people did not suppress their stories. So we get to read them today. Right. Although I think Ann Lister's diaries were hidden in the walls of the estate and somebody oh, later, wow. somebody later I didn't found know that. them and then she wrote them in an insanely complicated code that a historian hero decoded. So we only know now because the people in her life, I don't think were writing about it in ways that would be remembered because I think no. they just like informally accepted it in her day-to-day practice, which is interesting, but didn't really commit it that I know of. I could be wrong to their diaries. She did, um, but she somehow hid them in the walls of the estate. Um, Um, and somebody found them and this historian just like somehow decoded it. And I want to say it's like an ancient Greek and something else. And it's like, wow, I mean, what a lesson to us all to make our diaries as incomprehensible as humanly possible. Do you have your childhood diaries? Okay. So here's what happened with my attempts at keeping diaries as a child. I would attempt to keep a diary. I would have it going for like two to three days. I'd feel really great about myself. Then I would look back and I would say, you know what? This was when I was like eight or nine. I would say, you know, like nothing too exciting is happening to me. So I'm going to take a little license here with my diary and I'm just going to write sort of what I would think would be interesting material. So my diary would say things like, today I climbed Everest. It was cold. (laughs) And then I would feel like such shame that I lied that I would throw the whole thing out. Unbeknownst to me, my mom rescued some of them from the trash and has <gasps> some of them. Yeah. 
it was kind of a betrayal, but I just never had the patience for it. So I, I wish I had because that would be cool to have now. But what do you have, Allison? Harriet the Spy reached me right when I needed it to. And every single thing I wrote, I had a Babysitter's Club diary and I've had various other journals and I've kept some of the bound journals, but all the pages that I wrote on, I have since ripped out and ripped up and destroyed. And we were watching a documentary and my husband asked me, you know, you're a historian, so so you must keep things like that so people can read them in the future. I said, I know exactly that that is what someone will do, which is why they are ripped to shreds. It reminds me of that. (laughs) It's very you. It reminds me of that story that may be apocryphal of Bess Truman and somebody found her throwing some of Harry Truman's papers in their family fireplace. And people were like, what the heck are you doing? Like, what about history? And she looked them dead in the eye and was like, exactly. 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 Because his move was to get really mad when he wasn't dropping literal bombs to get really mad write a letter shove it in a drawer and then repress it like when people made fun of his daughter's singing voice he was like i will show you note drawer david mccullough wrote what i think is a a very good book about truman it's been a long time since i read it but we're not going to give him any more air because he's gotten a lot this week maybe we'll talk about that a bit when we do kirsten because he wrote about the settlement and colonization of the west in a way that is not really keeping with the times but maybe we'll get to that some right i mean my thoughts on the contents of that book are somewhat empty as he assumed the west was when white people found it Yeah. And I think at this point, he's, you know, you joke sometimes, you know, three reenactors in a cloak masquerading as a person. He's like three research assistants masquerading as a an esteemed historian at this point. So damn. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's fascinating to think about Downton Abbey is a different century, also not real people in a different time. Ann Lister could have made a trip that would have involved Felicity. Please say more. Oh, because she was going to come to Virginia. Yeah. So there there are ways in which, as an older woman, Felicity could have intersected lives with Anne Lister. Wow. Let me just say, so there's a scene where Anne Lister is basically when we meet her, like someone who's always on the go, like going to Paris because she can be with women more openly there, I guess. Um, she's constantly traveling. She comes back and there's a local woman who's 29, aka Major Spinster, who has like 2,000 pounds a year fortune. And Anne's like, you know, I could like fix this place up quite a bit slash build a coal mine if I, air quotes, married her. And then it seems to me like we're four episodes in that she's developed real feelings there and like maybe can't separate what seems like kind of a business decision from what might have like real desire attached. Anyway, there are so many great scenes and characters. So one of the places she teases she'll go before she decides to pursue this woman is Virginia. But when she decides to stay and pursue her, we meet this cast of characters. And if there's anyone that you and I love in a historical adaptation, it's older women who are sitting in a sitting room and just saying whatever the hell they want. Uh, That's always. I mean, we've talked about this previously that the actual correct march to like is the aunt. That's true. Aunt March is the correct March sister to like. And there's a scene where though they're both named Anne, which is confusing, but the Anne that Anne Lister is pursuing her aunt, she's like in a sitting room and the two Anne's are there and they're like, yeah, we might go on vacation to Italy. And the aunt says... Like, please never forget your brother died in Naples. And you're like, what? 
We, we both made screenshots of that. I'm looking for it. I like that because I like a person who takes things immediately to a place. I like people who are like, yeah, you think you're going to Disney World? Let me tell you how you could die there in two seconds. Yeah, you must never forget your brother died in Naples. That was a great moment. That was a beautiful moment. I hope we get another moment like that tonight on Gentleman Jack. I really can't wait. I can't wait to be an old lady who can just say whatever I want. Although realistically, like... We were watching it and I turned to Anna while we were watching it. I was like, that's me in like 50 years. And then Anna just kind of stared at me and I was like, I guess it's me in five minutes. It's me eight years ago. Right. Exactly. We've it's already come and gone for us. So I'll say something controversial in a way. If we did a Venn diagram of colonial slash post-colonial early republic ladies of that epoch who chose to wear clothing traditionally associated with men in the middle there's ann lister and felicity merriman i feel uncomfortable about this all right let's get into this movie because i do want to say something about the scene where she's discovered wearing ben's pants i agree this episode is brought to you by podcorn podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So I will give people the very basic recap, and if you've been listening all along, nothing about this is going to really be new to you. So when this film came out in 2005, its full title is Felicity, an American Girl Adventure, and it really covers all the basic plot points of the books, except for the mother's illness, because of course, we can't have a yellow wallpaper moment in a WB film. So I'll just give you the very quick recap. Everyone's Favorite Doll comes to life in this feature based on the best-selling books about a nine-year-old pre-American Revolution Virginian girl whose love for the outdoors leads to the friendship of a lifetime. Felicity, Shailene Woodley, loves horses, and though her parents plead with her to remain indoors, she yearns to ride the open plains. When Felicity comes into contact with a beautiful mare, which has suffered at the hands of its callous owner, she takes it upon herself to care for the creature and in the process learns a series of important lessons. Okay, so some quick differences to note. One, the mom, as you noted, does not have like a yellow wallpaper moment as she does in the books. Instead, she's pregnant. Two, grandpa doesn't die because he has a cold. He dies mysteriously like six months after having a cold and is not the person who helps um, Jiggy and I or Elizabeth's father in jail. So he kind of like is in and out and then dies. And it's all that's kind of it seems like a change they made to make the timeline make sense or not have to do too many sets on screen. No guitar. Absolutely no guitar, which is kind of sad, but also kind of a relief because that plot line is a lot. Okay, there is a lot to say about this movie. I watched this movie and I really didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know how I was going to feel about it. 
I don't know how to get into this, but I do just want to lay on you a conspiracy theory that I had from almost like five, maybe 30 seconds into this movie. Yes. Okay. So this movie was made in 2005. When the title cards start, you see first that this was produced by the WB, which is kind of like a time machine. It's sort of like something I would throw in a time capsule is like the WB frog. Like, wow, oh my God, I can't believe we're here. While I'm adjusting to that, and literally I'm driving on a nuts because I keep pausing it to take pictures, I see producer Julia Roberts. Shocking. Shocking. I was like, wait a second. I paused it. I was like staring into the middle distance. Julia Roberts produced this, okay? Then we see Shailene Woody as Felicity. And I'm looking at her hairstyle, okay? And I'm basically like, oh my God. It's like, I felt like Woodward and Bernstein probably felt, Allison, this is real. Stop. This is real. I felt like they probably felt when they first cracked the code. When when um, Woodward went to sitting on that police hearing where he's like, wait a second, all these guys who are being arrested or arraigned for the Watergate break-in, hmm, I think they've all been in the CIA. Like, that's weird. And he starts, like, pulling the threads that become the Watergate. Okay, that's how I felt when I saw her name. So I need to send you two pictures right now that I took, okay? I'm nervous. Don't be nervous. Everything's going to be fine. You're in a safe space. Um, I also, I never correct you, but I have to add a little specific thing. She's not just a producer. She's the executive yeah. producer. No, no, no. Thank you for that correction. It's it's needed. All right. Let me send you a couple of screenshots and we will post these of one Shailene Woody as Felicity. Okay. Is it Woodley? I don't I don't know if I'm saying her name right and I don't want to mess it up because I do respect her talent. I think you're hung up on your Woodward moment and you want it to be Woody. What is, what is her name? I, I, I believe it's Shailene Woodley. Woodley. Okay, fine. Look, she's not Nan. I'm not too attached to this. But okay, so I'm sending you... Did you see the picture I sent you? I'm kind of nervous. I sent you a picture of Shailene Woodley as Felicity. Now, we're going to post this. It's just her hair. It's like two candid screenshots I took. Am I the Bernstein? Oh, my God. You're hung up on that? Do you want me to write heartburn about you or have Mark write heartburn about you? I see the picture. All right. Okay. Now, that is Shailene Woodley as Felicity. Now, I did some research, okay? I jump on Google images. I start doing some targeted searches for Julia Roberts' hair looks, okay? Here we go. Allison, exhibit A, okay? Exhibit B. These are my Watergate tapes. Deal with it. The exact hair tint of Shailene Woodley in this film is drawn from Julia Roberts' Aughts looks. The waves, the waves that are tucked into the bonnet, it all comes from the Julia Roberts playbook. Now, look, this is just the tip of the iceberg because I'm looking at the hair and I'm like, the hair tells a story and it's more important than just hair. So I'm watching this whole play happen and I'm like, wait a second. What if Julia Roberts, not unlike Ann Lister, was like, I, or not unlike me, was like, hey, look, I wish I'd kept a diary, but I've blown it so many times. I've thrown it out. After I divorced Lyle Love it, I just had to burn it because it was too embarrassing. But I wish I had like something to show my daughter that was like, here's my story. Okay. But what do I have? What are the tools that I have available to me to tell this story? I, my agent, when I was like tipsy one night, convinced me to buy the rights to Felicity and American Girl. Don't know what that is dips into the books and is like, you know what? I can tell my story in this film. And that's exactly what I think she's done, Allison. 
please bear with me for a moment. This woman, this woman used this film to create a subtext diary of her own career. Don't believe me? Wait a second. Is this entire movie not Felicity standing before a horse and saying, I'm just a colonial girl standing in front of a horse, asking it to let her own it and or project her psychological issues onto it. Am I I wrong? So I want so badly for this to be true, but I have a different theory. Okay, I'll entertain this theory, but I still believe I'm right. I also believe you're right, but I think that my perhaps a little bit more... um, less string on a wall theory might might be closer so whereas you were doing visual comparisons which i think is brilliant i think that's really smart i do i can tell you don't and you're about to try to undercut everything i've just said no i don't i i think you're onto something i think i have a very practical explanation that will be a lot less entertaining but that's our dynamic so i put together a timeline of when exactly this was being done and when she created her own production company so her production company that made this is called red om films and that is the spelling of her married name from her second marriage backwards. It's Motor Backwards, M-O-D-E-R. Mm-hmm. She created this with her sister and a colleague. And the main projects that she did with this production company, some might say the project she buried, not really putting her name on, were mostly these American girl stories between 2004 and 2008. In 2004 and 2007, during that entire time, she was pregnant or birthing toddlers. Well, not birthing toddlers, but raising toddlers. I think this was her equivalent of The Rock voicing a character in Moana. Like, this is her gesture towards being a mother and being part of the parenthood world. I mean, I think both of our theories are autobiographical in a way. True. But... I I don't think you're wrong. Like, I think the hair is totally compelling. I think this film is 100% about her. I mean, I'm sorry. Is Ben not Aaron Brockovich? I don't know, but I want that to be true. Like, he's going to everyone in his life, and he's like, I am telling you this is real. And everyone's like, "You, why are you even at our dinner table? You're the apprentice. Or that's so, what I'm saying. Here's another layer that's so important to me. We haven't dropped this bombshell, but Marsha Gay Harden plays Mrs. Merriman. She plays the mother. So here I'm looking at her IMDb and I'm like, someone explain to me why this happened. Two theories. She did almost exactly in order, but they probably filmed in order. Projects entitled American Dreams with a Z, An American Girl Adventure, American Gun, and American Masters. Guess what else she did in this time period? I'm nervous. Mona Lisa's smile with guess who? Oh, my God. Look, the entire time I've watched this film, I was like, every adult deserves to be in this movie, except Marsha Gay Harden. Because she deserves more. She does. I was like, honestly, it was one of those moments when you wish you could walk, like, reach into the screen, and I would have put my hand on her shoulder, and I would have been like, are you okay? Are you safe? Do you need me to get you out of here? Because honestly, like, okay, I, I, she's one of those people that I will see anything that she is in because I think she's really, really good. I also 
like go on deep dives on YouTube watching celebrity interviews from like basically any era. There was a fascinating interview. I don't know if it's still on YouTube with Ellen Burstyn, Marsha Gay Harden on Oprah. And it's this insane interview where it was like interview your hero. So she picked Ellen Burstyn. And in response to just being like, tell me about acting, Ellen Burstyn's like, I... I go beyond method. Like there are times when I leave my apartment in New York and I don't bring a wallet and I live like a homeless person for a day just to like remember how to feel. And Marsha's like, wow, like, oh my God. And it's like, okay, that's your hero, a person who like needlessly lives as a homeless person in ways that are like insulting to actual homeless people. But then it's like, this is your craft. Like if she said, I would, here's my respect. If when she's doing it in press around this, she's like, I have two kids to send to college. I'd be like, proceed, carry on. God bless you. I hope this sells a lot of copies, whatever you need. But this is so beneath her. And the depiction of womanhood we get in this, I just want to say is not much better than the books. Here is some agency that she gets. She gets to tell Felicity that Penny is prego, unlike the books. She does. She does have that moment. Again, her illness is collapsed with the pregnancy plotline. We get the two of those together. I think there's things that feel even more egregious and outrageous because you're seeing them. You know, you had your sort of buttons situation. The scene where the mother is explaining to Felicity, you know, sort of that Apple scene, how some of the most exciting things you can do never get seen or apparently appreciated by anyone in your life because they're invisible labor. In the film, Rose is standing right there. Right there. How right many lines there. does Rose get the entire film? She it's gets not one. Zero. She gets one she line. It's one. And what's it about? She's um, Felicity is like, it really doesn't feel like Christmas, does it, Rose? And she's like, it sure doesn't. <laughs> the end. Thank you, Rose. Also, Marcus gets one line where he's like, hi, Miss Felicity. Can I help you? He's in the store. The end. That's his one and line. I- I believe he calls her Miss Merriman a few times and he smiles. Oh, God. It's so bad. Oh, my God. And also the scene. So the mom has the baby and then she has like a mysterious like postpartum illness where she's out of commission and Felicity is like taking over being mom as she does in the books. And you see there's this like really honestly, that was the most emotional scene. It was very wrenching. She's praying and she's like, God, do not take my mom. I am not ready to lose my mom. Like she's already lost grandpa. Like things are happening. She's like, mom, I can't lose mom. Like who's going to teach me how to like sew and do stuff? Literally while she's talking, we're seeing a montage where she's sewing in front of the fireplace with Rose. She was like, no one is teaching me. No one is helping me. And I was like, again, even in your prayer life, Rose is invisible. Rose will never get justice in this universe. It's a a new one has to be invented for her. And what's kind of a shock is like, so we watched different versions of this. I got a DVD from my local public library, which had on it many insane bonus features. But one of them is like Shailene and the actress who played Elizabeth taking us on a tour of Colonial Williamsburg and also like a behind the scenes featurette. Which we know is a lie because they filmed in Canada. Correct. It's like them going for the first time to Colonial Williamsburg and they're sort of like, oh my God, like the the meeting house. Like I remember, ooh, I remember this. And there's one point when they take their shoes off and they're trying to do a minuet in a building and it's like super awkward. 
it was, but there was no discussion of like, yeah, and there were enslaved people in Colonial Williamsburg, and we represent that in the film, and we consciously did X, Y, Z to make that happen. Instead, they're just like, oh my God, this was like a vacay. It was totally crazy. I learned how to ride a horse, and it was like nuts, and I felt like really close to the horse, and it was beautiful, and my trainers were fun, and I did school for eight hours a day. Thank you. Which I think is as much for their lawyers to feel covered as anything else. What I did love about the behind the scenes work is two things. One, Nan, the actress who plays Nan, you could tell was just as much fun and sassy off screen as she was on. She said my favorite line in the whole film, which I had to send to you as soon as I saw her say it, which is they're at the dinner table and Ben, when the mom is with grandpa and they get the letter that Ben has run away and is trying to leave his apprenticeship, Nan with no context, with no prompting, just says, I hate Ben. And I was like, speaking for us all, thank you, Nan. We also get to hear exactly how Grandpa feels in this, unlike when Felicity kind of turns away and he says, that lad should be in prison. Yeah, not great. Not a great look on Grandpa. I want to know how you felt about the representation of Jiggy Nye. It was not great. So... I think it was harder to see it because I think maybe when we were reading the books, we were able to minimize some of the the violence against horses because it's really only vaguely referred to. Right. But there's also, there's two things. It's the same kind of plot line of like, he's cruel to Penny and he's not really able to train her well because he has an addiction to alcohol. But then the scene where Felicity reveals that she's just been riding the horse and she now wants it to be hers and Jiggy Nye is explaining like that's not really how this works I kind of felt myself siding with him I think that yeah I understand that I think it's hard sometimes to watch stuff as an adult because as someone who pays rent and pays bills there's certain times where I'm like yeah this is unfair and this economy of like living in capitalism period is not a good feeling and is extracts labor and goods and rights from almost everyone who participates in it that is all to say Say, though that when she literally rolls up on the horse and is like he said anyone who could ride it could have her it's like you're being a brat right now right, like because right. she's not saying it like this he is a he she doesn't lead with he is abusing this horse he's gonna kill it to save the horse's life i took the horse and i'm prepared to suffer the consequences instead she's like well he said if anyone could ride it they could have it so here i am and it's like you just sound like a brat who like took somebody else's hot wheels like it's just not super convincing i don't know because the thing is it is it is different to watch it on film and see an animal be abused like it that was really jarring and it did kind of make you wonder how no other adults in that world were paying attention to that or felt the need to do anything about it but then you zoom out and you think wow why aren't they doing about anything about any of the other real violence in their community against other human beings and then you have to remember the moment and time that you're in and I think that's somewhat of the trouble of portraying a historical moment on screen in which you kind of want to have it both ways where you want features of modern life you want there to be a world where seemingly racism doesn't exist and yet your challenges your portraying a world where slavery does exist. So it's kind of shows up, I think, in the treatment of animals, that same kind of, you know, uncanny or disjuncture. It's it's hard to, I think it's hard to master. And I don't really know that this level of discussion was on the minds of Julia Roberts or anyone else involved in making it. But it definitely was on my mind that whenever you're talking about horses in this film, you're actually talking about a series of other things that go undiscussed. So when Felicity first reports back to the family, 
with Ben at the dinner table what they've seen of his behavior. One of her things that she cites is he raised his whip. And honestly, it doesn't even miss a beat. Rose is serving food. The father, Edward Merriman, turns to her and is like, Rose, and she puts down a plate. And it's so jarring because the family, again, it's like seeing this visually it calls out i think in even sharper relief this whole dynamic that we've been talking about and this film brought out something for me that i I hadn't really occurred to me until this felicity's lived there all her life zero friends no i'm serious she has it's true and then elizabeth comes to town because the, the father is so relieved that she makes a friend with elizabeth's arrival and it's like for all of us making fun of annabelle She's new. You've lived here forever and your dad has access to candy and no one wants to be your friend. I just think that's revealing. I think it's revealing. And I think it's also revealing that her own siblings don't really seem too interested in her. And she's the oldest sibling. Like she's supposed to be the one that like the younger ones are like, wow, she's cool and older. We want to be on her level. Nan's like every two seconds like, oh, are you serious? Like, can you please chill? I think Nan would do really well in 2019. I would be Nan's friend yesterday. Like, I, I love Nan. I love her energy. She wouldn't be friends with us, though. But you know what? That would make me respect her all the more. Like, I know. it's just, but it is kind of shocking that the only friends that she can handle or get are like Ben, her father's apprentice, who in a way is being paid to be her friend. Yeah. And, you know, Elizabeth and Annabelle. And, but it's like, are there really no other girls her age who live in Colonial Williamsburg? That can't possibly be true. And she's going to these common spaces like churches. Her father owns a general store, the store. I mean, she has space. It's not like she's off on a farm somewhere and she never leaves her home. So it's like, well, I have siblings and that's about all or cousins within striking distance. No. She's out and about. She's running around. She's sneaking off in the night with pants on. Like, okay, let me say something about the pants. Yes. A scene that I literally had to pause because I had to ask Anna if she heard what I heard. She sneaks out. She's wearing his pants. She comes back after like, say, a couple months of doing this. Ben walks in on her taking the pants off. Really didn't like this scene because it just felt really inappropriate. The first words out of her mouth are, it's not what you think it is. What did she think he thought it was? I'm honestly stunned. I don't know. I don't think I caught that. So you're a colonial windbag wearing a whistle. You walk into the barn of the family for whom you were an apprentice. You see a nine or 10 year old girl. I can't remember how old she is at that point. Taking off a pair of your pants. What do you imagine is happening? She's like, it's not what you think. It's like, is there a common thing we're all supposed to think is happening there? I think to me, that's the reflex of that's a line that would fit beautifully in WB programming of that era like that's a line from everwood that's a line from seventh heaven like that's wow. ruthie hijinks if you like <laughs> seventh heaven it is that's classic that's Ruthie true. situation oh my god that's like on seventh heaven they would account everything to being like a preacher kid they're like that's like pk stuff you don't understand this like when something would happen on the show and the, simon in particular would be like oh it's so hard to be pk like you don't get it and i'm not pk so maybe i just didn't get it but i was like wow this is like an exotic culture i don't understand if you have done a project 
explaining how Jessica Beale went from the world of seventh heaven to the sinner and a marriage with Justin Timberlake. I want you to reach out to us. I want to say this. I think the through line is like she finds corniness enticing because I think Justin Timberlake is corny now. And I think seventh heaven was corny. Yeah. And I say that as someone like I watched it. So I, I know of what I speak. I was there for most of the WB programming. I loved it. Now, I learned something because I I was also trying to, you know, parse all this out. Okay, there's the WB, there's Julia Roberts. The woman who directed this film also does Lifetime movies, which tracks, Mm -hmm. right? Into it. She she was on a TV show called Prisoner, which had 692 episodes. Come again? Her name is Nadia Toss, and she made Fatal Honeymoon. Oh, my God. So. I just want to quickly promote another podcast that does kind of take us through everything we've talked about today. We both love the Molly McAleer podcast, Mother May I Sleep with Podcast, which is about Lifetime movies. And if you don't get that reference, it's the Tori Spelling movie, Mother May I Sleep with Danger. It's a classic. Her her Fatal Honeymoon episode, I think, is one of her absolute funniest. Yes. She is friends with the person who wrote Bachelor Nation because she is mentioned in a seminar that they attended together. That's right. I mean, wow. She's connected to a lot of people that I'm interested in and I'm tracking. And if you want to dip into this podcast, the three I would recommend just off the dome. Fatal Honeymoon, one. Brittany Murphy. Two. Two. Brittany Spears, three. The Britney Spears one is a real time commitment. If I remember, it's very long, but it filled Kurt, me with rage. Yeah. It it made me cry. It was, I mean, every as we know, like we've talked about Britney on the show before. Britney is like a litmus test. She is she is something you like can drop down into in American culture and it explains everything. It does. And again, she's also very much of this moment. It's interesting to think of Shailene Woodley and Britney Spears taking these two very different trajectories because Shailene Woodley has really done a lot of different, I would say, random artistic films. And Britney Spears has basically stuck to like, no, I, I kind of do Disney kitsch for adults. She did make Crossroads. So I just want to say that that was a moment when I think she was trying to be, I'm putting this in scare quotes, artistic. Would you say that's not kitsch? Um, I don't think she thought it was kitsch. I think that's the important point. I mean, what we make of it is entirely different and dislocated from what she was intending. But that was the moment when she made I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. And she thought that was like a serious statement of independence. And at the time I was like, oh boy. But I mean, now I quote that line all the time about myself when I'm it most likely does not apply. But yeah, I, I don't know. Shailene, let's just get into her for a second. When we're watching this movie and we know what comes next for Shailene, it is kind of fascinating to think about the ways that maybe she took parts of Felicity with her. So here's something she didn't take with her. In the in the movie, in a way that it felt different from the book, it's it, we're supposed to believe that Felicity has not really made up her own mind on the revolution. Yeah. And there's a scene in the store where her mom is watching her and, and she says to the mom, like, what am I supposed to, what side should I be on in the revolution? Like Elizabeth's family are loyalists. Dad and Ben are patriot. And the mom's like, you have to decide that for yourself, Felicity. And it's like, ugh. Okay. And then at the end, Felicity doesn't really decide. She instead gives this weird voice over talk where she says it didn't matter if we were patriots or loyalists we were one 
around the Christmas dinner table. And it's like, okay, I'm done with consensus culture in 2019. It's over. And I'm just done with it. But so Shailene definitely did not take that with her because she has not been afraid to take very strong stances on political issues. True. Very true. She went to jail for protesting the Dakota pipeline. She's actually a very keen and I think very smart environmentalist. She's someone who's very interesting in that you don't really hear kind of petty stories about her personal life, but it'll be like, she eats clay. She's eating clay and she says that's a cleansing act. I'm not willing to try that. And this is not a goop podcast, so we're not endorsing that or suggesting you try it. But if you have done it, please report back. Let us know if you're like still alive and did it do anything for you. But she is like Felicity in that, as we learned, Felicity is a sort of self-made healer, a Dr. Quinn medicine woman of our times. And that's all also true of Shailene. I mean, we're not going to get into specifics, but if you want to Google sunbathing Shailene Woodley, you'll find some interviews. I think she doesn't shower a whole ton, so that would track also with a Felicity lifestyle. Basically, there are some interviews from 2014 when I think she was making the Divergent trilogy in which she played basically a Christ figure, but she was kind of low-key saying, that's not shade. That's like real. I've read those books. That's what I took from it. She was like, I collect my own spring water. I make my own shampoo and conditioner. And she also sunbathes completely naked because if you get vitamin D on a private area, it's good for your health according to her. Well, she lives in California also, I would assume. I hope. I mean, if she's trying that in like Kirsten weather and locales. I I doubt it. I doubt it. But maybe that was the foreshadowing of that scene. It's not what you think with the bridges. Oh my God. Like she already knew. I don't want to get conspiracy theorists, but there are scenes where people say that you can actually see that her ears are pierced. So it's like how much of this is a character and how much of this is Shailene telling us about the future. Basically, what I'm taking from our conversation is that both Shailene and Julia Roberts in very different ways were using the Felicity text as a kind of cipher for their own stories. And I want to share this. I think one of my new favorite genres of people responding to all of this My number one favorite genre is people reaching out to us and telling us what they think of the stories or what they think of something that was talked about. My second favorite is grown men who go on websites to review this content, which couldn't be made less with them in mind. A man named Kevin writes to us, watching Felicity learn the ins and outs of etiquette during tea or the place of a woman in the 1770s was just dull. He gives the film a two out of five. Did we ask Kevin? What? Wait, where did Kevin write this? This is Rotten Tomatoes, so you may check my sources oh if you like. Oh my god. Okay, can men, adult men, please stay off? I mean, this is like the most impossible dream in the world. I could not be care less about what any adult man needs to contribute to the internet anymore in 2019. It's over. Go into a cave. It's done. Like, he was the official critic that was reached out to or who contacted them. He gives the Blu-ray a one one or two out of five, and overall, he gives it a two. You know, he comments that there's a strong message, and he notes, like I said earlier, I'm not, nor have I ever been, a 10-year-old girl. I found this film to be a bit of a softball. And you know what I'm going to say to you, Kevin? I feel like that's coded language about softball, and I don't like it. Get out of here. He couldn't hang in one softball game. I'll tell you that, Kevin. No. The thing I liked most was the fact that it didn't try to tackle the problems of the world. It didn't try to put Felicity in the thick of the politics. I think this is a person who didn't really grasp what these series are about. 
I feel like it's David McCullough. And he's like, you know what? I kind of stumbled into this movie doing some research for John Adams and whatnot content. Did he write some other book about the American Revolution? He did. So he has a book about the founders. And then he has, I, I actually like John Adams. It's been a while since I've read it, but yeah, I like that too. It. If it had been a one-off, I'd be like, wow, what a cute older man. He wrote this book about John Adams. Cool. And then he kind of, I don't know, like pivoted to tell a story about a woman. I don't know, like other impossible dreams, but. Like, I would say this, if you want to actually learn something new and enriching and really brilliant about the Adams, go read the work of Sarah Giorgini. Yes. And we can link to that. Go read her work. That's fantastic. That's actually interesting. If you need for some reason to pick up a light and fluffy about an elderly gentleman of the past, he's your guy. And I'm I'm saying like, I don't have anything against presidential biography if it's well done. And again, it's been a while since I read those. I think the challenge is making sure that's not the only story people read. Right. And I remember um, I read John Adams, I think when I was in high school or something. And it was something that I was volunteering at a nursing home at the time. And it was like the thing I could talk about with all the older men who lived in the nursing home where I was working, because anything military or white boy history related is like catnip to them. So I would sort of just say like, John Adams, they'd be like, he's a huge crank. Like he was a bad president, this and that. George Washington was amazing. Uh no, he wasn't. Anyway, then a couple years later, I picked up and read Dearest Friend, which is a collection of letters I will also link to, which is a collection of letters between John Adams and Abigail Adams. And I really also want to highly recommend that because Abigail Adams is a really fascinating person from this era. And it's really easy to get hung up on exceptional figures like Dolly and Abigail Adams. But that's not to say that you shouldn't appreciate reading their words. And I love the way that they write to one another. And it really is a companionate marriage of the, from that era, maybe something kind of spectacular but it's kind of a relationship that seems even progressive in the world of Felicity's books. Like I'm actually watching when I was watching the movie and Marcia Gay Harden plays it so like housework is the most important thing like to be a homemaker and a woman to be a woman is it means that you aspire to be a homemaker. And at the end of the book, when she recovers from her postpartum illness, she compliments Felicity by saying you managed our home like a notable housewife. That's the highest praise she can give. And when you read the letters that Abigail Adams and John Adams wrote to one another, you just get the sense that he not only respected her for her ability to keep the home, which was a real task. It is real labor to be a homemaker, to keep to raise your children. That's real labor. But he also appreciated her mind in so many other facets of her character. And I don't get a sense from that. Like, again, mother doesn't even have a name. She's just mom. No. So check that out, too, because... I needed that after I it actually like watching this movie made me want to go back and reread a bunch of books like that because yeah, it's it's lacking here. No, in talking about this world, we also were discussing a little bit that we wanted to make another reading recommendation that kind of gets at a different aspect of women's lives from this time period. And this is set in a northern context, but I think it will make a lot of sense with what you're reading. We've mentioned before on this podcast that we both really love the book about Martha Ballard, who's a midwife. And that book gives you a lot of information about kind of women's worlds of that time period and how women shared medical information with one another. Shout out to the apothecary with no name. Um, that apothecary, we miss you. <laughs> that apothecary could have had another role in that community, which was women often talk to each other about their health and their menses. And this was something that they shared with each other. And we want to recommend uh, an article called Taking the Trade 
which is about how women shared information about herbal abortions and different kinds of procedures that they would do and share with each other. And it gives you a glimpse of how in Felicity's time and around that century, people talked about this. Right. So Yeah. And it, it's an important thing to look at, um, especially now, like if you're following the news and you want more information about how this topic was understood in the past, which was a very, um, a very different understanding, as Allison just noted. And there's also a website version of the article. So we're going to share both the article and we'll point you to the website. And it's important who wrote it. So so it was written by a legal historian. Her name is Cornelia Dayton. We both know her. She was at our university. And part of why we think this is a great snapshot of a period of time is she has this training as a legal scholar, really. So she's kind of looking at this from we have all these court records, all these ways that people are talking about women and their bodies and the law. And it's a really smart example of not a assuming that people in a different century had what we would think of as a backward or antiquated. You know, we don't want to look at a certain region or a certain time period and say everyone thought this way and time moved forward and people thought better. This article, I think, will kind of blow your mind to show you how 300 and 250 years ago, people just thought really differently about this and about people's autonomy over their bodies. So 100%. Yeah. So it's it's really important to read. And it's a really interesting and well-researched um, piece, very well known and regarded in early American history. And we're happy to share it with you. Allison, do we want to share what where we're going after this? Do we want to make a big announcement? We do. And we want to make sure that people know that we do read everything you send us. We respond to everybody, you know, as as best we can, as quickly as we can. And we have talked in the past about like OG American Girl as being five women. And do you want to explain why we're going to talk about it as actually being six? Right. So we originally talked about it as five women because that was our experience of what we call OGAG. Those were the five dolls that we grew up with. So we're talking about Samantha, Addie, Kirsten, Molly, and Felicity. And we originally focused on those five because those were the five that were created and sold by Pleasant Company when it was its own company before it was sold to Mattel. Um, Josefina is the sixth doll in the chronology. And that didn't really play a big role in my life because I had sort of aged out of it personally at that time. Although I know that a lot of other listeners of ours who are our age um, read the books, loved the books, and had Josefina the doll and loved the doll. But we think of her as kind of a cusp because she's right around that period when the company was sold to Mattel. But a lot of folks have reached out to us to say, you know, we organized the show in our minds when we started um, thinking that we would do them in the order in which they were set chronologically, which is why we started with Felicity. And we would do the five OGs and then we would switch from doing them by setting chronologically to their release date. So we were going to do the first five by chronological setting and then switch to Josefina and go by release date after that. But so many folks have said that they consider Josefina part of this first group that we want to include her in the first group and in this original organization of chronological setting. So as a result, our next doll is going to be Josefina. Montoya. Correct. I'm thrilled someone has already thrown a murder conspiracy my way. What? About Josefina and her father's rapid remarriage. As ever, there are things I remember and many, many, many things I don't. So this is where we differ even just in that year. 
So I was 12 when her stuff came out and definitely too old to be really maybe as deep as I was. She was kind of, she was my cusp. It was like, okay, this is the last one I'm really going to get into. But her story is really fascinating and I think will give us a lot to chew over because American Girl, after the release of the first five, so this is late 90s, right at the time of the Mattel acquisition, her story is kind of a borderland story. Like she lives on the border with Mexico, if I understand correctly. Oh, cool. I see. I never read the books. I don't know anything about her and I'm purposefully not looking anything up because I want to go into the books totally fresh. You know, as far as I remember, it was really an attempt to be multicultural in a new way, in a different way. And I know that it was something of them kind of looking broader than the typical stories that you might be used to. Because when you look at the first five, like it's really a very straightforward chronology and a very kind of, okay, you have the American Revolution, you have the Underground Railroad. Then it was this attempt to be a little bit more flexible. Um, And I believe Kit comes after her, but please correct us if we're wrong. Completely. So that's where we're going. We're so excited to have so many of you with us. And with that in mind, thank you so much to everyone who has helped share our show, who has sent us messages about it, who has said such wonderful things about it online. You know, we're seeing a lot of the stuff and we're just so awed by it. So thank you so much, honestly. And thank you for being brave and sharing your pictures with us. Today, we shared a photo of Molly. So you'll be able to see that if you follow us on Instagram. This is a grown up person named Molly who dressed up as Molly for Halloween, which is fantastic. Love it. So, um, so let's just review quickly all the places where you can find us online. Absolutely. So we actually got an email today saying, hey, thank you for, you know, not just being on social media. So feel free to send us an email at americangirlspod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at American Girls Podcast. We are also American Girls Podcast on Facebook and on Twitter due to their parameters. We are a girl's pod and we have a website which we link to on each of these which is americangirlspod.com. We also have a hotline and when you go on our website you can click right on that link on your telephone and call and leave us a message. We would absolutely love to hear from you on the hotline. We are so excited to have the hotline and we would love to do an episode answering your questions. They can be questions about the series. They can be questions about the show. They can be questions about us. They can be questions about pop culture. I mean, look, I'm opening the hotline. I will take what's there and we will work through it. If you call us as Ann Lister, we will include it. I'm making we'll air it like no. Yeah, well, that agree. That's happening. Um, And we should also say that on the website, when you go onto the website, you'll see a a page that says share your story. And if you click on that store, that link, it takes you to a forum where we invite you to share your own American Girl story. It can be any story about how you first um, found out about American Girl, your favorite American Girl book, things you remember, um, games you remember playing with your doll, maybe dresses you made. Um, Did you go to American Girl birthday party? Did you have one? Did you go to a historical interpretation, you know, American Girl event at your local house museum? Whatever it is, you know, did you fight with your friends about who is the best American girl? Did you write fan fiction? Really, whatever your story is, go on there and share with us. You can type your story. You can upload a voice memo of you telling us your story and we might air it on the show. You can share video with us, really whatever you want to do. Um, And again, you can call the hotline and leave us a message as well. 
And we'll leave you with a parting thought, which is that one of the toys for Josefina is a goat named Sombrita. I'm excited. I can't be more excited about this. I'm genuinely like, this is going into a total unknown. So it's it's great for me. I'm really excited. And just to say, um, you can find Allison and I online as well. Allison, where can people find you on Insta and Twitter? So I am at Allison Horrocks, and you can find the spelling of that in our show notes or on the title of the podcast. So you can find me there on Twitter and on Instagram. And you can also find me on Facebook. There you go. And I'm also on Facebook. I'm on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. I'm on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. And you can find all our links again on the website as well. So we look forward to hearing from you. We've loved hearing from all of those we've heard from so far. And thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon. I think I, I think I know more about American girls yeah. than you do. You never listen to any American girls' studies.